Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, is Alberta's new turn-off-the-taps law constitutional? We hear from one legal expert. Also, Alberta facing some serious budget issues. A new report out from the University of Calgary's School of Public Policies on how to address those longer-term fiscal challenges. Plus, Canada versus China. Do we need to, and how should we push back? We hear from one expert. There was a weird narrative going around yesterday afternoon that uh, the new premier of Alberta had broken a promise on Bill 12. I suppose you can uh, question whether this is a promise he ought to keep. Uh, But it turns out that Jason Kenney did what he said he was going to do. That shortly after being sworn in as premier, he would meet with his cabinet and they would proclaim into law Bill 12, the so-called turn off the taps legislation. And that's what happened. We can debate whether this law makes any sense. Seems like we're destined to, to fight this out in court. But the law has now been proclaimed. Question put to Jason Kenney today. What is it that BC would have to do for us to make use of this tool, this power? He was a little vague on that. We will seek the path of diplomacy, seeking common ground, uh, assertively uh, defending our position as Albertans, our vital economic interests, and making it clear to our partners in the Federation, including the B.C. government, that we are prepared to use tools like this if there is ongoing obstruction. So, Rick, uh, when, uh, you're, when you're in a game of poker, you don't show the, guy, the other folks around the table what your high card is. You don't uh, play that high card on the first, uh, uh, on the first hand. Okay, that's kind of an awkward poker analogy, but um, essentially the word from the premier is, we'll wait and see. Now, Jason Kenney did make a case today that uh, in, in other ways, BC's government has obstructed the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project, but says we're not yet at the point where he would deploy this tool. Now, the former premier, now oppositionally to Rachel Notley, reacting to all of this today. Now, even though her government passed this law, they did not proclaim it. And she believes it's a mistake to do it now. By proclaiming Bill 12 now, Premier Kenny has effectively removed the legislation from the protective fence in which it had been shielded. And it has now made it vulnerable to legal challenges that could render it useless for a very long period of time. He has literally, as we've said before, taken what could be perceived by some as a weapon and blown it up on the launch pad. All right, so B.C. has already made it clear that they intend to challenge this in court. In fact, uh, B.C.'s Premier John Horgan is set to speak soon. Uh, We'll have some of what he has to say, but let's get some legal analysis on this question. Is Alberta acting constitutionally by proclaiming this law, threatening to use this tool? Could we actually do so? Joining us for some thoughts is Eric Adams, a professor at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. Professor Adams, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Yeah, happy to be here. All right, I want to get your thoughts uh, on what what this might entail. Jason Kenney said he doesn't want to make conclusions or or judge ahead of time what the courts might decide. But what's your reading of how problematic this law might be? Well, if if you're if you're not in favor of uh, passing uh, unconstitutional laws, then 
I think this is uh, a law that uh, you're not going to like much because the letter of the Constitution is pretty squarely against the enactment. Uh, and uh, I say that just on a plain reading of the of the language of this is going to get a little technical. Section 92A2 of the Constitution Act 1867 says that uh, Provinces cannot pass laws that will provide for discrimination in prices or supplies to another part of Canada. And that, that's a quote right from the constitutional document. I, I suspect the NDP had their own uh, views on the constitutional vulnerability of this particular law. I suspect their own government lawyers were telling them that it stood very little chance of being upheld, which is why they enacted this strategy of not proclaiming. Premier Kennedy, had, I think, had painted himself a bit into a corner by saying, as part of his get tough strategy, we'll show you that we're tough by proclaiming this law out of the gates. Um, but now the horses are in the race, and uh, we'll find out relatively quickly, I would think, um, that the law has constitutional troubles ahead. So Alberta doesn't actually have to make use of this, this tool or this power, just the mere existence of the law, that, that can be challenged in court. I think that's right. I mean, one of the arguments that Alberta government lawyers will raise is that um, no actual uh, price discrimination or no uh, lessening of supply has occurred yet, so you can't challenge this law. I, I doubt that argument will succeed. I think a court is going to say, look, once a law is in effect, um, the citizens of BC and Alberta have a right to constitutional uh, laws being in place. And um, if, if I'm right that this law is unconstitutional, then I think a court will see fit to strike it down. Well, maybe we're we're exposing each other's hypocrisy, uh, Alberta NBC here. That if BC is is trying to regulate pipelines, that's federal jurisdiction. They're acting unconstitutionally. Uh, I guess by us acting unconstitutionally, we're kind of showing them the, the, how empty their arguments are. But we're kind of doing the same thing to ourselves, aren't we? I suppose there are there are lots of political arguments uh, that might be in favor of this kind of behavior. Uh, I I suspect, although I I don't know, of course, that 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 Premier Kenny has considered the possibility of losing this litigation. And my hunch would be is that he probably doesn't much care because this is part again of a of a strategy to get tough, and he wants to announce that both to his political base, but also to uh, his rivals in other in other parties in other jurisdictions. So, um, if if his government lawyers have told him that this law is unlikely to survive, which I suspect they have, then I think Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Kennedy, probably just shrugged his shoulders and said, I can live with that. Um, I, I don't speak with knowledge, but that's my hunch of what's been playing out behind the scenes. What do you make of the argument, though, that Bill 12 doesn't single out or doesn't specify uh, B.C.? And you referenced the wording of, of uh, 92A, too, uh, of the Constitution Act. But if we're not singling out any region or any province, do we somehow get around that? Um, the, the short answer is no, and, and here's why. Because courts in these kinds of, of battles don't look just at the particular wording of the statute in front of them. What they look at is the entire context of the law when it was enacted and the statements of government officials, including the premier, 
in relation to that law, there is a mountain of press releases and and quotes from the Alberta legislature that BC government lawyers have amassed in which the in which the purpose of this law is entirely plain. Indeed, the premier repeated that explicit purpose in the last two days, which is uh, that this is there as part of a battle with British Columbia to turn off the taps or to punish or as part of a retribution against uh, perceived uh, uncooperative behavior on the pipeline issue. And and so all of that's going to be in court. So can an Alberta government lawyer stand up and then say, actually, this this really isn't about BC at all. Just ignore everything that's been said about the law by those that wrote it and enacted it. Mm -hmm. Um, A court's not going to buy it. Is there a separate question of the pipeline itself? The the current Trans Mountain Pipeline is a batched pipeline, which carries a variety of products to BC, but also to, to the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Uh, do we have a workaround in in that? If if Alberta simply uh, moves to change the mix of the product moving through that pipeline, does that present a different kind of question? It's possible. So there is, of course, scope for provincial jurisdiction to pass laws in relation to the production of of oil and gas products, and and that's clear. And and that's what Alberta is is trying to rely on here. That that they've simply enact, enacted a licensing scheme that's in the best interests of production issues within the oil patch, and and they have that jurisdiction, um, and they do. To to a certain to a great extent, have the jurisdiction to 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 pass laws about the various uh, production issues and and in, including some export issues in relation to the movement of of natural uh, gas and and oil products. But but here is is the kicker: uh, the the framers of the constitution said, if we're going to give you this jurisdiction, provinces, you cannot use it to create and uh, act in trade wars against other provinces. Uh, they explicitly foresaw almost this pre- precise scenario. Uh, and, and that's why I think the, the law, no matter how it's framed or what it might be used to do, is, is going to be in trouble. I guess we'll soon find out. Uh, Eric Adams, appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. Cheers. All right, there you go. Eric Adams, professor of law at the University of Alberta. His thoughts on where some of the problems in Bill 12 might lie, uh, where this all goes from here. Well, a bit all the focus on Bill 12 today, the turn off the taps legislation and uh, where this all goes from here. Alberta's new premier, Jason Kenney, was asked about uh, his plans for a budget. The legislature is going to resume sitting later this month. We're not likely to get a budget, though, until the fall. Uh, obviously, balancing the budget is a big priority, and it's something that Jason Kenney has talked a lot about. But balancing the budget isn't the end. It's really just kind of the end of the beginning. That we've got some much bigger and longer-term fiscal challenges that we need to address. Does this premier understand that? Obviously, look, he's inheriting a situation. You can argue even to some extent that the previous government inherited a situation. So this isn't necessarily to point fingers, but to illustrate what those challenges are. A new report out today from the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Joining us to talk more about it is its author, Trevor Toome. He's uh, an economist at the U of C and uh, also a research fellow with the School of Public Policy. 
Trevor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, you know, it's interesting because we sort of think of the deficit as the, the beast we need to slay, but it goes way beyond that, doesn't it? That's right. If we balance by 2022, which, uh, just to be clear, I think is a credible goal, uh, the UCP platform did lay out kind of enough detail to show how they hope to balance by 2022, even though they're going to have lower revenues from corporate tax reductions and eliminating the carbon tax. Uh, a spending freeze does plausibly get us to balance by 2022, but that is really um, just part of the broader fiscal challenge that the province faces. An aging population uh, here, like elsewhere, is going to add significantly to health costs, which is by far the largest ministry in government. So what we released today through the school was analysis that goes beyond just 2022 than to think about what happens between then and, say, 2040. And this builds on past analysis uh, that I put out through the school back in November to really try to quantify how big this challenge is. And it is very big. Current policy, if we don't do anything, we're on track to have a, a debt-to-GDP ratio of about 50% by 2040. And that, that's well beyond the highest point that Alberta's ever seen, even back in the Great Depression. Wow. If we balance by 2022 and then kind of return to status quo after that, um, then the debt-to-GDP is about half of that, so close to 25%. So this short-term um, goal of balancing by 2022 does tackle about half of the long-run fiscal challenge in the province, but that, of course, leaves open the question of what we're going to do to address the other half. Yeah. And the government has said they're going to appoint a panel uh, to kind of take a look at that, to think about what the government should do beyond 2022. And so that's, I think, a very important part uh, of addressing the province's finances, seeing what kind of options that panel comes up with, what the pros and cons of those options are. Right. It's interesting because, you know, certainly our, our current budget situation has been exacerbated by our economic situation uh, and, and the downturn that Alberta has gone through. E- even though those issues are interwoven, I mean, they, they represent separate challenges. Addressing economic growth is, is a different question from addressing our, our budget challenge. That's right. I mean, economic growth does translate into government revenues, of course, because there is taxes levied on income. So measures that can increase GDP growth will certainly translate into higher revenues for the government. But over time, an aging population is going to weaken that relationship. As as people retire, fewer are paying income taxes, for example. Uh, And uh, as we age, those health cost pressures grow far beyond any reasonable expectation of economic growth. Uh, Even a conservative projection put out Uh, This morning, behind the numbers that we're releasing, shows that after 2022, health costs are likely to grow in excess of 5.5% per year, which is probably a full percentage point more than the rate of economic growth. So we just... um, we can't rely on economic growth to, to fix this longer-term fiscal no. challenge. Well, and I mean, e- even when we had economic growth, I mean, it, it's not as though our deficits began with the economic downturn. We've been running deficits in, in Alberta long before that. that. That's absolutely right. I mean, we've seen a deterioration of the Alberta financial situation in terms of its uh, net asset position and now its net debt position. We really turned that corner right after the financial crisis, and it's been getting worse consistently since then. Uh, a lot of that has to do with 
Well, I guess you could look on both sides of the coin. Uh, we do have lower than average tax rates in Alberta because of uh, our historic ability to fund program spending with resource revenues, but we also have higher than average levels of spending in Alberta, too. So I th- there's, there's really a problem on both ends of the spectrum here. Mm-hmm. And certainly previous governments have tried to have it both ways, uh, that, that we're going to be a low-tax jurisdiction, we're going to be a high-spending jurisdiction, but that, that's really not sustainable in the long run, is it? Yeah, that, that is not. And I think a, a bigger problem in how past governments have approached the Alberta budget is in how they respond to unexpected windfalls in resource revenues. Mm-hmm. We see that when those revenues are unexpectedly high, you tend, or governments in the past have tended to spend roughly two-thirds of that windfall. Whereas when resource revenues fall, there isn't a corresponding reduction in spending. So we've kind of ratcheted up gradually through time to the high level of per capita spending that we have today. And that's where I think long-term planning, which Alberta does not do, uh, can help anchor uh, how we look at shorter-term budget decisions, right? If we keep our eye on the future, then we're hopefully less likely to be making um, fiscal calculations for short-term payoff. So in terms of what's putting the pressure on, on our, our budget going forward, I mean, you mentioned health care. Is, is health care the biggest one? Health care is by far the biggest one just because of the sheer size of the ministry itself. Uh, so it's accounting for today well over 40% of the budget and will approach 50% in the coming years. And so that means that cost increases in that ministry really do contribute in a big way to changes in the overall deficit. Uh, some other spending pressures that Alberta is likely to see deeper into the 2020s actually speaks to advanced education. Uh, we have a, a big cohort of people moving through um, primary and secondary education right now that are going to want to attend university in the latter half of 2020 that really does increase pretty significant, uh, significantly the cost increases in, in that sector, and that's also a fairly large ministry and government. But even if these represent significant challenges, does it necessarily mean dramatic solutions, as in you know, drastic cuts to, to program spending or significant tax increases? Great. And that's, that's the key question. I mean, given the fiscal challenge, how do we address it? So another piece of what we released today is to illustrate some potential options here. One option to address the remaining half of the long-term fiscal challenge is to grow spending after 2022 at a rate equal to population and inflation. So to maintain the effective size of government past 2022. Over time, uh, that does bend the debt curve in the province down so that it is on a sustainable level, getting to a little below zero by 2040. So repaying the debt that we've accumulated over, over time. Now that's not an easy thing to do to maintain the effective size of government while the population is aging. So it'll require disciplined and sustained action over time, but not an immediate drastic cut or on the flip side, any kind of immediate large new tax in order to address the problem. But we do need to think about sustaining gradual action over time in order to make a difference. And that requires long-term planning, which again, I'll note, we don't do.
No, we don't. Well, people can read more for themselves. Policyschool.ca. Trevor, always appreciate it. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you. All right. Trevor Toome, Associate Professor, Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy. The school putting up this research today. Again, policyschool.ca. So this whole canola situation, just the latest escalation on China's part in this dispute with Canada. And I think increasingly people are looking to the federal government for some kind of a response. It's been a difficult issue for the federal government to navigate, obviously, not wanting to further antagonize the Chinese, maybe hoping that this situation can resolve itself. But it doesn't appear as though that's likely to happen. At some point, we have to stand up for ourselves, don't we? So how do we do that? When do we start doing that? Is, is it time for a different approach, given that China doesn't appear to be backing down anytime soon? Joining us to talk about where things go from here, very pleased to welcome in the program Charles Burton. He's an associate professor at Brock University, uh, served two stints as counselor to the Canadian Embassy in China. Professor Burton, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Well, what do you make of this, this latest uh, situation regarding canola producers? Is, is it a sign that China's continuing to try to put pressure on Canada? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, we've got the the two canola companies that are barred from supplying canola seeds into the Chinese market, which is, as we know, a huge market for our canola, amounting to 40% of our exports, equivalent last year to 2.7 billion Canadian dollars. So that's uh, enormous. But we're also seeing the Chinese authorities slowing the uh, customs inspection of other commodities, peas, uh, soybeans, other pulses. And in the case of, I think, some uh, peas, they claimed that there were ants in the shipments, which, you know, is very, very unlikely to be possible. So it means that our customers in China are less inclined to, to source from Canada because of the uncertainty about getting the stuff through the, the Chinese customs. And so they might look to other supply so I think certainly this is an ongoing issue. Um, we have indications that the Chinese government has been uh, calling for all firms that have dealings with Canada to provide the Chinese government with lists of possible programs for retaliation. So the canola could be just the beginning as the Chinese authorities continue to try and pressure Canada to release the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou before she goes to the United States, where, you know, she might be inclined to provide information to the U.S. government about her firm Huawei's connections to Chinese security and intelligence agencies. So it's a very bad situation, and I think it's time for Canada to, as you say, start to take some effective action against China to try and uh, stave this um, continuing flow of of uh, actions damaging to the canadian economy and canada's interests well let me put the question another way is there is there any case at all to be made for appeasement here if if we were to wave the white flag release the the uh, huawei chief financial officer what what is the risk of doing so would that make all of this go away I think that really we're looking at a game-changing situation. Um, you know, I don't think that this matter is like a, a storm in relations that will pass 
and then Canada can go back to what we were doing before, which was essentially prioritizing the promotion of Canadian prosperity through enhanced trade with China while making um, continuous concessions to China to allow that to happen. So, you know, the Chinese say, well, we'll reduce the non-tariff barriers to your access to our market, but we want you to remove the restrictions on Chinese state investment in Canadian energy and mineral resources. We want you to, to remove the restrictions in terms of national security reviews on Chinese acquisition of critical infrastructure or um, high-tech. We'd like you to negotiate an extradition treaty with us so that uh, persons who've fallen afoul of China's regime and fled to Canada can be freely returned to face Chinese justice, which, of course, has no due process of law, and there's pervasive use of torture and interrogation. So, you know, that was the way we were doing things before, and it wasn't working out very well. And it certainly left a a perception in China that Canada is a weak partner and can be run roughshod over. And unfortunately, since December, I think we're we're, um, emboldening them to continue to take action against us because they haven't seen any kickback from us whatsoever. So in terms of appeasement and waving the white flag, I think we've had that white flag up on top of our flagpole for some time now, and the Chinese can see it very clearly. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. So, uh, I, I know there's, I think there's been a fear about, you know, escalating things if we push back. But if, if things are being escalated anyway, I mean, maybe we, we don't have much to lose at this point. Well, I think we have to look at the longer term and the larger picture. You, you know, um, Canada benefits from the rules-based international order. We're a medium-sized power, and the only way that we can um, defend ourselves against anarchical behavior by superpowers like the United States and like China is in alliance with other like-minded countries, impose regimes like the World Trade Organization and the United Nations to try and regulate global behavior in terms of certain values of fairness and justice to the extent possible that you can do that. And China has been running roughshod over this for 25 years, really, in terms of its lack of compliance with its obligations to the WTO and um, and its pervasive violations of the norms of human rights, including supporting rogue regimes, dangerous regimes like North Korea, and um, and its expansionary policies into the South China Sea, which are you know under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea should be international waters, but China's been putting military bases on through land reclamation on those things. So we've just allowed this to happen. And uh, it really is time, I think, for Canada, along with our allies, to try and come up with some alternatives. Certainly in trade, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership looks promising Mm -hmm. to allow us to have a a fair trade regime of nations that have similar commitment to rule of law and, uh, and, um, you know, even trading. Um, But in the other areas, I think we really have to start enforcing our our laws, enforcing the WTO, enforcing the laws in Canada against money laundering. Um, We should be uh, insisting that the Chinese cease to uh, export fentanyl into our country by maybe slowing the inspection of Chinese shipments to make sure there's none of that noxious substance in there. And uh, and in terms of... um, of Chinese agents, you know, cyber espionage and agents of influence harassing Canadians of Chinese origin and uh, seeking to influence our Canadian policymakers, I think we ought to crack down on those people and expel some of them from 
Canada if they're engaged in activities which are just unacceptable under normal international norms of diplomatic intercourse. So there are a lot of things we could do. The Chinese would surely, you know, lash back at us, but I think that that would be, um, you know, temporary pain for long-term gain, continuing our current policy, which really amounts to a form of appeasement, uh, I don't think will serve us very well in the long run. It's interesting. When you talk about our other allies, and the Americans in particular, I mean, you know, certainly the Trans-Pacific Partnership would be more effective, uh, a counterweight to China if the Americans were a part of it. I think the yes. U.S. has raised some very legitimate concerns about China, but they haven't really sought to enlist any allies to present a, a united front. So, I mean, how much of a, a problem is that at the moment where we should be standing shoulder to shoulder with our American allies, but it doesn't feel like they're, they're in the mood for friends at the moment? Yes, I mean, it, it's interesting the U.S. is seeking to resolve the problems of Chinese theft of intellectual property and unfair tariff barriers and unfair other unfair trade practices um, uh, bilaterally. And so I, I think that that could come back to, to haunt Canada. You know, for example, if, the, if China and the U.S. in the interests of closing the three-to-one trade imbalance that they currently exist between China and the U.S. Um, China agrees to source, say, more soybeans from, from the U.S., you know, promises a quota of soybeans from the U.S. Well, that would mean China would be buying U.S. soybeans, which means that they would not be buying as many Canadian soybeans. So, you know, we could lose out um, from the uh, entente that may exist over trade between China and the U.S., and I think for that reason we really have to be looking to other partners, um, you know, other middle powers to try and, and counter this uh, disturbing trend in global politics, where really I think neither China nor the U.S. feel that the World Trade Organization or or the U.N. Uh, institutions or other, um, you know, um, regional partnerships such as NATO are really serving their interests. And, and, and if if uh, the U.S. withdraws from its commitment to these important uh, international regulatory agencies designed to promote peace and prosperity, then uh, we do have a problem, and I think we have to strengthen our connections with other allies outside of the U.S., and that would include, you know, Japan and Germany and and uh, the middle powers of Scandinavia. And I think that together we would form a sufficient sort of bulk collectively that we could uh, try and influence uh, Chinese behavior in, in ways that would be less damaging to our interests, uh, unlike the current trend, which seems to be that Canada is being um, negatively affected by a very sophisticated and uh, and um, um, hostile Chinese engagement yeah. with us. Do we have any leverage on our own? I mean, if we, we wanted to retaliate against China, I mean, you know, when it comes to, to energy, for example, are, are there ways that, that we could do that on our own? Well, I think, um, you, you know, we do have commitments to these international institutions, and I, I think we have to work through those to to effectively uh, engage in any kind of retaliation against China. I mean, one one possible measure that would be somewhat symbolic was recommended by the leader of the opposition, Andrew Scheer, which is that Canada should start taking steps to withdraw from the Chinese-dominated Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. Mm -hmm. um, Canada went into that against very strong U.S. objections and strong Japanese objections. I think because we felt that it could curry favor with China and, and further our desire to establish a free trade agreement with China. I think basically the free trade agreement ship has sailed. I, I don't think Canadians would tolerate that. 
And so, you know, withdrawing from it could send a strong signal to China that um, that uh, if Canada withdraws, other nations might also decide that we're not going to go along with the idea that China should be displacing the United States as the dominant power in the Asian region. So, you know, it's something we could do. The other one is we need to get an ambassador into Beijing. Um, the Swedes um, had a problem with their ambassador and fired her, um, similar to what we did with Mr. McCallum. But, um, you know, that was long after McCallum was, was let go by the Prime Minister, and Sweden has an ambassador in Beijing now. Um, the question is, why months after McCallum um, was forced to resign, don't we have anybody in Beijing to represent our interests at the senior level? So, you know, if it's a question the Chinese are refusing to consider candidates that we're proposing, um, then I think time has come to expel the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa, for which we have good reason. I mean, his his suggestions that our judicial process was tainted by white supremacist attitudes, which is why Meng Wanzhou was arrested, is just completely unacceptable diplomatic discourse. So we have all good justification to, to send him out. And yeah. the fact that we don't have an ambassador in Beijing suggests that it's an imbalance if China continues to have an ambassador in Ottawa. Let me just ask you this question in closing here. I mean, what about the Huawei 5G decision? Where, where does that fit into all of this? Well, you know, we could, we'd certainly be appeasing the Chinese regime if we agreed to the Huawei 5G. Um, you know, China, I think, has strong geopolitical interests in establishing the Huawei company um, to have um, the ability to manipulate the 5G telecommunications infrastructure around the world for you know, potential espionage purposes and certainly in terms of um, infrastructure purposes. I think that because we don't have trust with that regime, it's very hard for us to consider installing that equipment, especially if it would give the Chinese authorities the capacity potentially to turn off the power and water uh, throughout our country. We have more trust with the Europeans like Nokia and Ericsson, and I think the only prudent decision is to is to go with one of those for this uh, cutting-edge new technology. Well, we'll leave it there. Professor Burton, really appreciate the insights, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Good to speak with you, Rob. All right, likewise. Right, Take right, care. Right. Charles Burton, uh, Associate Professor of Brock University, former Counselor of the Canadian Embassy in Beijing between 91 uh, and 93, and then again from 98 to 2000. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.